0: Good evening, uh, everyone, and uh, welcome to church this evening. Uh, please be seated. And let me pray as we begin. Our loving Heavenly Father, to, today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, we thank you for your mercy in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. We remember him as he who knows no sin enters Jerusalem our King Jesus on his way to the cross to take our sins upon himself help us father by your spirit that we may repent of our sins turn back to Jesus and be saved and we pray all this in his name Amen oh good evening friends Uh, we will be looking at the gospel passage that the Ram Kubuwa read just now from Luke uh, chapter 19 28 to 44 on page 43 of the service order. And in in the bulletin on page 5 is a sermon guide. It's quite crowded, but I think you should still have some space uh, to take notes if you are one of those who are taking notes. Our friends today, as we join millions of Christians throughout the world to celebrate Palm Sunday, our reading from Luke's Gospel, could seem to be a bit out of place. I say this because Luke does not mention anything about palm leaves or palm branches or any branches of other threes at all in his account of the triumphal entry. Though these are biblical, they are mentioned, for example, in parallel accounts in John. Uh, John mentioned palm leaves. And uh, the other two synoptics, Matthew and Mark, respectively, uh, speak about uh, branches from other threes. But this is what I think. I think that Luke's focus on other details of this tremendous event helps us to understand and appreciate even more the significance of what it is that we are celebrating at this occasion that we call Palm Sunday. Now, Luke first introduces and prepares us for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem by telling us about three events before our passage. These are not printed on the service booklet, but are listed for you on the sermon guide, should you wish to read up on them later. But let me run through very quickly for you these three events. Firstly, the account of a blind man that was captured by Luke in Luke chapter 18, Verses 35 to 43, this blind man, who on hearing, on hearing that Jesus was coming along, called out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. And in spite of the opposition and the the, the crowd trying to prevent him from calling out to him again, nonetheless called out, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. But the focus here is how the blind man addressed Jesus. He addressed him as son of David, pointing us to the king, a kingly title of this person who was uh, uh, described in 2 Samuel 7. A king who is not just an ordinary king, but a king who will rule forever and ever. In this miracle, showing us a king who brings healing and wholeness to a a broken world that is broken uh, by sin and under God's judgment. Secondly, the repentance of the sinful Jewish tax collector Zacchaeus that opens up our, our chapter 19 of Luke from verses 1 to 10. Now, Zacchaeus was a short man. So he could not see Jesus. He was looking for Jesus and he could not see Jesus over the shoulders and the heads of those people who were taller than him. So he desperately climbed up to this sycamore tree and up there he was able to see, look out for Jesus. And Jesus saw him and called him and called him down. And at his home, Zacchaeus confessed his sins and was pardoned by him. And Jesus said these words to him, Today, salvation has come to this house for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The words that Jesus used to describe Himself was the Son of Man, pointing us towards Daniel 7, the King to whom God will give dominion and glory and power, who in this account of Zacchaeus gives restoration and salvation to all who repent of their sins and turn back to Him. What a marvellous thing. Thirdly, Jesus' parable, warning of judgment in Luke 19, 11 to 27, just before our passage. It, was, it is about the nobleman who commanded his servants to look after his interests while he went uh, far away to receive a country. And because he was going far away, he expected to be uh, absent for a while. But he told his servants, Look after my interests, mainly described here in the parable in terms of money. And then some of the servants, they obeyed him and did as he had commanded, while others, they just opposed him and did not want him to rule over them. And in our last verse of this parable, Jesus summed up this as the king's command, But as for this, Enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Here in this parable, showing a king who will judge all those who do not accept him and oppose him. Now all three events help us to focus on the theme of kingship. But a king who is not just any common king, it is about the one promised in scripture by God and anxiously longed for and awaited by his people. In our passage, Luke will continue to show us this king in even more detail. We start with verse 28 on page 43. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. Now, the three events that we spoke about briefly just now happened in Jericho, about 70 kilometers away from Jerusalem, to the northeast of Jerusalem. And Jesus is now three kilometers direct east of Jerusalem. So he has traveled over 60 kilometers, a long distance during those days. And he instructs two of his disciples to go on ahead of the group to bring a coat for him to ride on. And now, here is the problem. How can anyone just go into a village, see a young coat tied to a tree and just untie it and bring it to Jesus? It's like me asking you, go into the garage and you see the red Ferrari sitting there, just jump into the Ferrari and bring it to me. So, as if, to address the two disciples' unspoken concern, Jesus said in verse 31, He said this, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, over the years, many op- opinions have been given. Some say Jesus has already made arrangements with the owner of the coat. Others say that animals could be hired for the hilly ride up Mount of Olives and down the Mount of Olives and up the little hill that leads to Jerusalem. It was the cultural thing during uh, the first century A.D., during Jesus' time. Others say, and I think this reason is the most possible one, that Jesus' fame and reputation has gone on before him, the man his disciples called Lord, and the mere mention that the Lord needed it was enough for the owners to release the animal to his agents Jesus knows that the uh, owners will query, and so he prepares his disciples for it. But there is something else about the cult. No one has ever sat on it, Jesus said. Again, when it comes to this, there are many differing opinions on this. But again, I think this just emphasized Jesus' knowledge and control over this event. He knows exactly that there will be a donkey tied to this tree, and that donkey is a coat on which no one has sat on before. And so, the disciples entered the village, and it is exactly as Jesus has said. And we find this in verse 35. And, and the result is in verse 35, and the disciples brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they said Jesus on it. They prepared a suitable seat for Jesus, a saddle that is made up of their own outer garments, their cloaks. And so Jesus sat on the coat, and he approaches Jerusalem. Now, in our next part of the passage, we see two differing reactions to Jesus on opposite sides, of the, on two opposite poles, so to speak. First, the response of the crowd of disciples also on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. We call them the pilgrims. Now, we hear this described in verses 36 and 37. As Jesus rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, the spreading of clothing on the ground for Jesus has its origins in Scripture, on the sermon guide is printed for you a passage from 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 12 to 13. If you look down, you can see it says this, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king of Israel. Then every man of them took his garment and put it under him, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Yehu is king. Look here once again capturing for us the, the crowd's recognition of Jesus as king. Now, some think that the cloaks make for a more comfortable ride over the dusty and muddy road, and it is a more suitable way of, uh, for a king or a nobleman to ride over these cloaks so that he will not get his uh, mule or his uh, feet dirty. Others think that the cloaks symbolically take the place of the honest physical bodies for Jesus to ride over, because they could not lay themselves on the road for the king to ride over. So they put their cloaks there as a symbol of their humility and homage before the king. And now whatever you think, the action tells of the homage and the respect and the love of the crowds of disciples, welcoming the king of Zechariah 9, who comes riding on a donkey, bringing peace, and rule over the nations from sea to sea, all the while thanking God for the great works that He had done in Jesus. Now, the next verse, 38, is a very interesting one. We'll split into two. Firstly, um, the crowd calls out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice how these disciples traveling to, to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover uses a specific quote, from Psalm 118, verse 26. But instead of using just the pronoun he, they have changed that to include the king, to mention that it is a sovereign that is coming in. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize this, that this is no ordinary man who comes in the name of the Lord, but the king. And they continue to praise and to glorify God. And in the second part of verse 38, they call out these words, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And now here we have another problem. What do they mean by peace in heaven and glory in the highest? Didn't Zechariah speak of the king on the donkey bringing peace to earth? And again, over the years, you know, there have been many, many opinions and suggestions as to what this means. Some say, I think erroneously, that it is a post-crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension statement that has been inserted here. And others say, it is a peace that is laid up in heaven for God's people, their treasure, so to speak. And others think, and I think this is the most likely one, that the pilgrims recognize in this humble yet kingly figure, Jesus Himself, riding on the fall of a donkey instead of a great war horse in front of His great army, as God's means of peace. Peace not only on earth, but in heaven. A, profet- a prophetic glimpse, if you like, of King Jesus coming to restore, to reconcile humanity. To God, to His glory. However, you take it. Verse 38 paints for us a wonderful picture, helping us to see Jesus, the King, on His way to His city, Jerusalem. Now, of course, at this point, the disciples did not yet understand that the greatest work of Jesus is still to come, though the psalmist in Psalm 118 has already mentioned it. Jesus will be rejected. Yet, he will be the cornerstone of God's new kingdom, his new people, and his new nation, the church. And because in a few days, Jesus will die for the sins of the world, but God will raise him up three days later, and Jesus will then take his proper place of glory in heaven, seated at his Father's right hand. Now, we said that there are Two responses to Jesus. One of the disciples, and now we come to the second, the response of the Pharisees. Our friends, it's clear that these Pharisees recognize that the disciples are welcoming Jesus as the Davidic king, the promised one of God. But in their minds they must be thinking, "They can't be. On the donkey, riding on the donkey? This king should be in armor on a great war horse at the head of a huge and powerful Israeli army to bring victory over the hated, oppressors and conquerors of the Jews. So they called out to Jesus in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And this is how Jesus answered them. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus said, even lifeless stones know who Jesus is, the Creator who made them, and they would cry out in praise and glory of Him. But these disciples who have been given so much in their life, who have studied so much of Christ in God's Scripture, who have been given so many opportunities to lead the nation Israel, know Him not. And therefore, we be judged accordingly. Because they do not acknowledge Him, Him who comes to give eternal life. And so, as we come to the last part of our passage, Jesus continues His journey to Jerusalem. In verse 41, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, He wept over it. And He continued saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We have seen before, Jesus' sadness over Jerusalem, which is printed for you in the sermon guide, uh, taken from a previous chapter, Luke 13, verses 34 to 35, when Jesus called out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But these Jewish leaders representing the nation Israel would not join in the pilgrim's call to bless He who comes in the name of the Lord, to bless the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Instead, once again, Israel would reject and kill yet another prophet from God, not just any prophet, but the Son of God Himself. And so instead of the peace in heaven and on earth that Jesus comes to give, they will face destruction and desolation as God judges it. Jesus said this in the following two verses, which make up the last bit of our passage. Jesus said, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. And so, it will happen just as Jesus has pronounced. For in AD 70, the Roman army will lay siege on Jerusalem and will totally destroy it, including the massive temple and the entire city. Just as Jesus has said, they will not leave one stone upon another in you. And to the Jews, destruction of God's city, Zion, Jerusalem, and of the temple is God's spiritual abandonment of his nation. Israel's stubborn refusal to acknowledge Jesus' visitation the first time round brings immediate and historical judgment. God no longer dwells in their midst. And friends, when we read this, we too are warned that judgment is certain no matter how long. Jesus takes to return. Remember Jesus' parable that leads into our passage? This judgment is that in the here and now, the absence of peace and joy of reconciliation to God to be enjoyed in His Spirit and at Jesus' second coming, eternal separation from Him. Friends, notice this. That rejecting King Jesus means facing the fearful wrath of the God who sent His Son, the King who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to save us. And so as we come to the end of our passage, what can we bring home with us this evening? I suggest three things. And again, there are, these are not the only three, and it's not an exhaustive, exhaustive list. And I, I must say that I have been very grateful to some of you, who have taught me some powerful applications and conclusions over the years um, when I shared with you from the Bible. And I want to thank you. But this is what I would like to suggest to you: three things. Firstly, Jesus is sovereign king, not just some helpless victim, miserable and pathetic, driven by the whims and fancies of his opponents. He is in full control. And Jesus knows exactly what is to happen, what awaits Him in Jerusalem. The Son of God rides on in full obedience to His Father. He rides on, heading to His cross for us. Number two, our response to this King should be obedience, not hostile objection like the Pharisees. Jesus rode on with sadness in His heart, friends knowing the terrible judgment for those who do not accept Him, knowing also that reconciliation to God can only be done through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that those believing in Him will not die but inherit eternal life. That's the second thing. Thirdly, I ask the question, is Palm Sunday just about palm branches and crosses? Our friends, remember, When we first started our discussion, I said that Luke makes no mention of palm or three branches, but that Luke focuses on the theme of kingship, riding on a coat, the fall of a donkey. This leads us to a follow-up question. We have to ask ourselves this. Do we truly know Jesus as king? If we do truly know that Jesus is king, then... Palm Sunday is not just about palm crosses and palm branches. It must be about our personal homage to our loyalty, our faithful service, and our commitment to the King who came to save us 2,000 years ago. It must not be just about today, perhaps just a sentimental and nostalgic commemoration with palm crosses and branches, Or worse, a superstitious belief that these palm crosses or branches can bring about salvation on their own. If you recognize Jesus as King, it must be a a lifelong commitment to obey Him. This lifelong obedience to obey Him means denying ourselves, taking up our own crosses, no matter how much that will cost us and no matter how long it will take and following Him to the end, so that when He comes, He will gather us like a a hand, bringing His brood of chicken to Him, just as He said. Friends, if we know Jesus as King, we have to do this. We have to deny ourselves, take up our own crosses, and follow Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you for reminding us that Jesus is King. We pray, Lord, that you teach us to obey him and to commit ourselves to his service. We know that we are weak human beings and we can't do this without you. So we pray that you will help us in the strength of your Spirit that we will go forward to trust totally in Him, knowing that He walks side by side with us, even as we do so. We pray all this in His name. Amen.